dying thoughts. Philippians 1 verse 23 For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Dying Thoughts by Richard Baxter Chapter 1 What There Is Desirable in the Present Life Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. And dost thou open thine eyes upon such an one and bringest me into judgment with thee? As a watch when it is wound up, or as a candle newly lighted, so man newly conceived or born begins a motion which incessantly hastes to its appointed period. And as an action, or the time of it, is nothing when it is past, so vain a thing would man be, and so vain is life, were it not for the hopes of a more durable life with which this is connected. But those hopes and the means for supporting them do not only distinguish a believer from an infidel, but a man from a beast. When Solomon describes the difference only in respect to time and the things of time, he well observes that one event happening to both shows that both are vanity. And Paul says of Christians, If in this life only we have hope, we are of all men most miserable. Though even in this life, as related to a better, and as we ourselves are exercised about things of a higher nature than the concerns of a temporal life, we are far happier than the men of the world. I am intended to speak to none but myself, and therefore, supposing the meaning of the text to be duly ascertained, shall only observe what is useful to my own heart and practice. In this chapter I will consider what there is desirable in the present life, then show chapter 2, the necessity and reasonableness of believing that pious separate spirits are with Christ. Next, explain chapter 3, what it is to depart and to be with Christ, and chapter 4, why it is far better to be with Him. I will conclude chapter 5 with expressing my concern that I myself may be willing to depart and to be with Christ. It was a happy state into which grace had brought the apostle, who saw so much of what was not only tolerable, but greatly desirable, both in living and dying. For him to live was Christ, that is, to do the work and serve the interests of Christ. For him to die was gain, that is, would be his own interest and reward. His straight was not whether it would be good to live or good to depart, because both were good, but he doubted which of the two was more desirable. Nor was it his meaning to bring his own interest and Christ into competition with each other. By Christ, or the interest of Christ, he means his serving the churches of Christ upon earth. But he knew that Christ had an interest also in his saints above, and could raise up more to serve him here. Yet because he was to judge by what appeared, and saw that such were much wanted upon earth, this turned the scales in his choice, and therefore, in order to serve Christ in the edification of his churches, he was more inclined, by denying himself, to have his reward delayed, at this time well knowing that the delay of his reward would tend to its increase. Here let me observe, that even in this world, short of death, there is some good so much to be regarded, as may justly prevail with believers to prefer it before the present hasting of their reward. I rather note this, that no temptation may carry me into the extreme of taking nothing but heaven to be worth minding, and so even sinfully cast off the world on pretense of mortification and a heavenly life. Not that anything on earth is better than heaven, or is in itself to be preferred before heaven, the end as such 
is better than the means, and perfection better than imperfection. But the present use of the means may be sometimes preferred before the present possession of the end. And the use of the means for a higher end may be preferred before the present possession of a lower end. Everything has its season. Planting, sowing, and building are not so good as reaping, fruit gathering, and dwelling. But in their season they must be first done. But let me inquire what there is so desirable in this present life. The answer is obvious for 1. While this present life continues, the will of God is fulfilled. He will have us upon earth for a season, and that is best which God wills. 2. The life to come depends upon this present life, as the life of adult age depends upon infancy, or the reward upon the work, or the prize of racers or soldiers upon their running or fighting, or the merchant's gain upon his voyage. Heaven is won or lost on earth. The possession is there, but the preparation is here. Christ will judge all men in another state as their works have been in this. First, well done, good and faithful servant, then enter thou into the joy of the Lord. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course, must go before the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give. All that we ever do for salvation must be done here. It was on earth that Christ himself wrought the work of our redemption, fulfilled all righteousness, became our ransom, and paid the price of our salvation. And here also must we do our part. The bestowing of the reward is God's work, who, we are sure, will never fail. Here is no room for the least suspicion of his failing in anything he undertakes. But the danger and fear is of our own miscarrying, lest we be not found capable of receiving what God will certainly give to all that are fit to receive. To distrust God is heinous sin and folly, but to distrust ourselves is highly reasonable so that if we will make sure of heaven, it must be by giving all diligence to make our calling and election sure upon earth. If we fear hell, we must fear our being prepared for it. And it is great and difficult work we have to do upon earth, as, for instance, to be cured of all damning sin, to be born again, to be pardoned and justified by faith, to be united to Christ, made wise to salvation, renewed by His Spirit, and conformed to His likeness, to overcome all the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil, to perform all our duties towards God and man, with the heart to believe in Christ and the righteousness, and with the mouth to make confession unto salvation, also to suffer with Christ, that we may reign with Him, and be faithful to death, that we may receive the crown of life. Thus on earth must we so run that we may obtain. Number three, we must labor to do good to many, and therefore, we have greater work to do on earth than merely securing our own salvation. We are entrusted with our own master's talents for his service, to do our best in our places, to propagate his truth and grace, to edify his church, honor his cause, and promote the salvation of as many souls as we can. All this is to be done on earth, if we would secure the end of all in heaven. It is in an error though but few are guilty of it, to think that all religion lies in minding only the life to come and in disregarding all things in this present life. All true Christians must seriously mind both the end and the means of attaining it. If they believingly mind not the end, they will never be faithful in the use of the means. If they be not diligent in using the means, they will never obtain the end. Heaven must have our highest esteem and our habitual love, desire, and joy but earth must have more of our daily thoughts for present practice. A man that travels to the most desirable home has a habitual desire to it all the way, 
but his present business is his journey, and therefore his horse ends in company. His roads and his fatigues may employ more of his thoughts and talk and action than his home. I've often wondered to find David in the Psalms and other saints before the coming of Christ express so great a sense of the things of this present life and say so little of another, making so much account of prosperity, dominion, and victories on the one hand, and of persecution and the success of enemies on the other hand. But I consider that it was not for mere personal and carnal interest, but for the church of God and for his honor, word, and worship. For they knew if things go well with us on earth, they will be sure to go well in heaven. If the militant church prosper in holiness, there is no doubt but it will triumph in glory. Satan does much of his damning work by men as his instruments, so that if we escape their temptations, we escape much of our danger. When idolaters prospered, Israel was tempted to idolatry. Most followed the powerful and prosperous side. And therefore, for the glory of God, and for our own everlasting salvation, we must, while upon earth, greatly regard our own, and much more, the church's welfare. Indeed, if earth be desired only for earth, and prosperity be loved only to gratify the flesh, it is a certain mark of damning carnality in an earthly mind. But to desire peace and prosperity for the sake of souls, the increase of the church, and the honor of God, that his name may be hallowed, his kingdom come, and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, accords with the highest and most sacred discharge of duty. And now, O my soul, be not unthankful for the mercies of this present life. This body is so nearly united to thee, that it must needs be a great help or hindrance. Had it been more afflicted, it might have been a discouraging clog, like a tired horse in a journey, or an ill tool to a workman, or an untuned instrument in music. A sick or bad servant in a house is a great trouble, and much more a bad wife. But thy body is nearer to thee than either of these could be, and will be more of thy concern. Yet, if it had been more strong and healthful, since an appetite would have been strong, and the stronger thy lust, the greater would have been thy danger, and much more difficult thy victory and salvation. Even weak senses and temptations have too often prevailed. How knowest thou then what stronger might have done? When I see a thirsty man in a fever or a dropsy, and especially when I see a strong and healthful youth bred up in fullness and among temptations, how they are mad in sin, violently carried to it, bearing down the rebukes of God and conscience, parents and friends, and all regard to their own salvation, this tells me how great a mercy I had, even in a body not liable to their case. Also, many a bodily deliverance has been of great use to my soul, renewing my time and opportunity and strength for service, and bring in frequent and fresh reports of the love of God. If bodily mercies were not of great use to the soul, Christ would not so much have showed his saving love as he did by healing all manner of diseases. Nor would God promise us a resurrection of the body if a suitable body did not promote the welfare of the soul. I am obliged to great thankfulness to God for the mercies of this life which he has showed to my friends that which promotes their joy should increase mine. I ought to rejoice with them that rejoice. Nature and grace teach us to be glad when our friends are well and prosper, though all this must be in order to better things than bodily welfare. Nor must I undervalue such mercies of this life as belong to the land of my nativity. The want of them is part of God's threatened curse, and godliness has a promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come, and is so profitable unto all things. When God sends on a land the plagues of pestilence, war, persecution, and famine, especially a famine of the word of God, it is a great sin to be insensible of them. 
If any shall say, Well, heaven is sure, we have no cause to accuse God, or to cast away comfort, hope, or duty, they say, Well, but, if they say, Because heaven is all, we must make light of all that befalls us on earth, they say, Amiss. Pious and public-spirited men who promote the safety, peace, and true prosperity of the commonwealth do thereby very much befriend religion and men's salvation, and are greatly to be loved and honored by all. Let me therefore be thankful for the preservation from enemies, the restraint of persecution, the concord of Christians, and increase of godliness in this land, and especially that the gospel is continued in it. Be particularly thankful, O my soul, that God has made any use of thee for the service of his church on earth. My God, my soul, for this does magnify thee, and my spirit rejoices in review of thy great undeserved mercy. Oh, what am I, whom thou tookest up from the dunghill or low obscurity, that I should live myself in the constant relish of thy sweet and sacred truth, and with such encouraging success communicate it to others, that I may say, now my public work seems ended, that these forty-three or forty-four years I have no reason to think that I ever labored in vain. Oh, with what gratitude must I look upon all places where I lived and labored, but above all, that place which had my strength. I bless thee for the great numbers of them gone to heaven, and for the continuance of piety, humility, concord, and peace among them, also for all that by my writings have received any saving light and grace. O oh, my God, let not my own heart be barren while I labor in thy husbandry to bring others unto holy fruit. Let me not be a stranger to the life and power of that saving truth which I have done so much to communicate to others. Oh, let not my own words and writings condemn me as void of that divine and heavenly nature and life which I have said so much of to the world. Stir up then, O my soul, thy sincere desires and all thy faculties to do the remnant of the work of Christ appointed thee on earth, and then joyfully wait for the heavenly perfection in God's own time. Thou canst truly say to me to live as Christ. It is his work for which thou livest. Thou hast no other business in the world. But thou doest this work with a mixture of many oversights and imperfections, and too much troubleth thy thoughts with distrust about God's part, who never fails. If thy work be done, be thankful for what is past, and that thou art come so near to the port of rest. If God will add any more to thy days, serve him with double alacrity. The prize is almost within sight. Time is swift and short. Thou hast told others that there is no working in the grave, and that it must be now or never. Dream not, because Christ's righteousness was perfect, that God will save the wicked, or equally reward the slothful and the diligent, as sin is its own punishment, holiness is as much of its own reward. Whatever God appointed thee to do, see that thou do it sincerely, and with all thy might. If sin disposed men to be angry because it is detected, disgraced, and resisted, so that God be pleased, their wrath should be patiently borne, who will shortly be far more angry with themselves. I shall not be hurt when I am with Christ by the calumnies of men on earth, but the saving benefit will, by converted sinners, be enjoyed everlastingly. Words and actions are transient things, and being once passed are nothing. But the effect of them on an immortal soul may be endless. All the sermons that I have preached are nothing now, but the grace of God on sanctified souls is the beginning of eternal life. It is an unspeakable mercy to be thus employed sincerely and with success, and therefore I had reason all this while to be in Paul's strait, and make no haste in my desires to depart. 
the crown will come in its due time, and eternity is long enough to enjoy it, how long soever it be delayed. But if I will do that which must obtain it for myself and others, it must be quickly done before my declining sun be set. Oh, that I had no worse causes of my unwillingness yet to die than my desire to do the work of life for my own and other men's salvation and to finish my course with joy in the ministry I have received of the Lord. As it is on earth, I must do good to others, so it must be in a manner suited to their earthly state. Souls are here closely united to bodies, by which they must receive much good or hurt. Do good to men's bodies, if thou wouldst do good to their soul. Say not, things corporal are worthless trifles, for which the receivers will be never the better. They are things that nature is easily sensible of, and sense is the passage to the mind and will. Dost thou not find what a help it is to thyself to have at any time any ease and alacrity of body, and what a burden and hindrance pains and cares are? Labor then to free others from such burdens and temptations, and be not regardless of them. If thou must rejoice with them that rejoice, and weep with them that weep, promote them thy own joy by helping theirs, and avoid thy own sorrows in preventing or curing theirs. But alas, what power has selfishness in most? How easily do we bear our brethren's pains and reproaches, wants and afflictions in comparison of our own? How few thoughts and how little cost and labor do we use for their supply in comparison of what we do for ourselves? Nature indeed teaches us to be sensible of our own case, but grace tells us that we should not make so great a difference as we do, but should love our neighbor as ourselves. And now, O oh my soul, consider how merciful God has dealt with thee, that thy strait should be between two conditions so desirable, I shall either die speedily or stay yet longer upon earth. Whichever it be, it will be a merciful and comfortable state. That it is desirable to depart and be with Christ, I must not doubt, and shall hereafter more copiously consider. And if my abode on earth yet longer be so great a mercy as to be put into the balance against my present possession of heaven, surely it must be a state which obliges me to great thankfulness to God and comfortable acknowledgment nor should my pain or sickness or sufferings from men make this life on earth unacceptable while God will continue me in it. Paul had a thorn in, him, in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet him, and suffered more from men than I have done, and yet he gloried in his infirmities and rejoiced in his tribulations, and was in a strait betwixt living and dying, yea, rather chose to live yet longer. Alas, the strait of most men is between the desire of flesh for fleshly interest and the fear of death as ending their felicity, between a tiring world and body, which make them weary of living, and the dreadful prospect of future danger, which makes them afraid of dying. If they live, it is in misery. If they must die, they fear greater misery. Whether they look behind or before them, to this world or the next, fear and trouble is their lot. Yea, many serious Christians, through the weakness of their trust in God, live in this perplexed strait, worry of living and afraid of dying, continually pressed between grief and fear. But Paul's strait was between two joys, which of them he should desire most. And if that be my case, what should much interrupt my peace or pleasure? If I live, it is for Christ, for his service, and to prepare for my own and his everlasting felicity, and should any suffering make me impatient with such a work and such a life? If I die presently, it is my gain. God who appoints me my work limits my time, and surely his glorious reward can never be unseasonable or come too soon if it be the time that he appoints. 
When I first engaged myself to preach the gospel, I reckon as probable, but upon one or two years, and God has made it above forty-four. And what reason have I to be unwilling now, either to live or die? God's service has been so sweet to me that it has overcome the trouble of constant pains or weakness of the flesh, and that all men have said and done against me. How much the following exceeds this pleasure, I am not now able to conceive. There is some trouble in all this pleasant work, from which the soul and flesh would rest. And blessed are the dead which die in the Lord, yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. O oh, my soul, what need has this kind of strait to trouble thee? Leave God to his own work, and mind that which is thine. So live that thou mayest say, Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Then as thou hast lived in the comfort of hope, thou shalt die in the comfort of vision and enjoyment. And when thou canst say of God whose I am and whom I serve, that thou mayest boldly add, I know whom I have believed, and into his hands I commit my departing spirit. Chapter 2 The Necessity and Reasonableness of Believing That Pious Separate Spirits Are With Christ The subject suggests to my thoughts the necessity of believing that the souls of the godly, when departed hence, shall be with Christ, and the reasonableness of such a faith. We are elsewhere assured that we shall be with him where he is, and to be with him can mean no less than a state of communion and a participation of happiness. To believe such a state of happiness for departed pious souls must appear, upon consideration, to be both necessary and reasonable. Number one, the necessity of believing that pious separate spirits are with Christ appears by considering that, without this belief, we shall be uncertain concerning the design of life we shall lose the most powerful motives to a holy life. We can neither know, estimate, nor improve our mercies, nor can we bear our sufferings with comfort. 1. We shall be uncertain concerning the design of life. It is allowed that the right end of life is to please God. But I must desire to please God better than I do in this imperfect state. I must desire to please Him perfectly. And our desires of our ultimate end must have no bound. God has made the desire of our own happiness so necessary to the soul of man that it cannot be separated from our desire to please him. Therefore, both in respect to God and to our own happiness, we must believe that he is the everlasting rewarder of them that diligently seek him. If we knew not whether God will turn our pleasing him to our loss or to our having no gain by pleasing him, this would hinder our love to Him and our trust and joy in Him and consequently hinder the cheerfulness, sincerity, and constancy of our obedience. Had we no certainty what God will do with us, we must have some probability and hope before we can be entirely devoted to His service. How can a man pitch upon an uncertain end? If he wavers so as to have no end, he can use no means. He lives not as a man but as a brute. Or if he pitch upon a wrong end, he will but make a work for repentance. Number two, we shall lose the most powerful motives to a holy life. Indeed, goodness is desirable for itself, but the goodness of means is their fitness for the end. We have here abundance of hindrances, temptations, and difficulties which must be overcome. Our natures are diseased and greatly indisposed to the most necessary duties, and will they ever be discharged if the necessary motives be not believed? Our duties to God and man may cost us our estates, liberties, and lives. The world is not so happy as commonly to know good men from bad, or to encourage piety and virtue, 
or to forbear opposing them, and who will let go his present welfare without some hope so better as a reward? Men do not use to serve God for naught, or while they think it will be their loss to serve him, all life of sin will not be avoided for inferior motives. When lust and appetite incline men strongly and constantly to their respective objects, what shall sufficiently restrain them except the motives from things external? If sin so overspread the earth, notwithstanding all the hopes and fears of a life to come, what would it do if there were no such hopes and fears? Number three, we can neither know, estimate, nor improve our mercies. God gives us all the mercies of this life as helps us to an immortal state of glory and as earnest of it. Sensualists know not what a soul is, nor what soul mercies are, and therefore know not the just value of all bodily mercies, but take up only with a carcass shell or shadow instead of the life of their mercies. No wonder they are so unthankful for God's mercies when they know not the real excellency of them. Number four, nor can we bear our present sufferings with comfort without the hope of living with Christ. What should support and comfort me under my bodily languishings and pain, my weary hours and daily experiences of vanity and vexation of all things under the sun, had I not a prospect of the comfortable end of all? I, that had lived in the midst of great and precious mercies, have all my life had something to do to overcome the temptation of wishing that I had never been born and had never overcome it by the belief of a blessed life hereafter. We should be strongly tempted in our considerate moments to murmur at our Creator as dealing worth by us than by the brutes. If we must have had all those cares and griefs and fears by the knowledge of what we want and the prospect of death and future evils which they are exempted from and had not with all the hope of future felicity to support us. Seneca had no better argument to silence such murmurs than to tell them, If this life have more evil than good, and you think God does you wrong, you may remedy yourselves by ending it when you will. But that could not cure the repinings of nature, when weary of the miseries of life and yet afraid of dying. No wonder that so many fancied that souls were punished in these bodies for something done in a pre-existent state. Oh, how contemptible a thing is man, says Seneca, unless he lifts himself up above human things. Therefore, says Solomon, when he had tried all sensual enjoyments, I hated life because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me for all its vanity and vexation of spirit. Roman numeral number two. As for the reasonableness of believing that pious separate spirits are with Christ, I have often thought whether an implicit belief of it may not be better than searching into its nature and trying what can be said against it. I have known many godly women who never disputed the manner, but served God comfortably to a very old age, and who lived many years in such a cheerful readiness and desire for death as few studious men ever attained to. This, no doubt, was the divine reward of their unwavering confidence and trust in the promises through Christ. On the contrary, as doubts and difficulties are apt to present themselves to an inquisitive mind, they must be answered. For if we reject them unanswered, we give them half the victory over us. And a faith that is not upheld by such evidence of truth as reason can discern and justify is often joined with much doubting, which men dare not confess, but do not therefore overcome. And the weakness of such a faith may tend to enfeeble all the graces and duties which should be strengthened by it. Who knows how soon a temptation from Satan or infidels or from our own dark hearts may assault us which will not be overcome without clear evidence. Yet many that try and reason and dispute most have not the stronger faith. 
Indeed, there is a wide difference between that light which discovers the thing itself and a mere artificial kind of knowledge to form arguments and answer objections. Unlearned persons who have little of the latter may have more of the former, even that teaching from God which reaches the heart as well as the understanding, and who does not find it necessary to pray hard for this divine teaching. When I can prove the truth of the word of God and of the life to come with the most convincing evidence of reason, I feel my need to cry daily to God to increase my faith and to give me that light which may sanctify the soul and reach the end. Nevertheless, this effectual teaching ordinarily supposes that which is artificial. Unlearned Christians are convinced by good evidence that God's word is true and his reward sure, though they cannot state that evidence or conceive of it without some confusion. With respect to curious and needless inquiries, beyond what is revealed, it is a believer's wisdom implicitly to trust his soul to Christ, and to fear that vain, vexatious knowledge which is selfish and savors of a distrust of God, and is that sin and fruit of sin which the learned world too little fears. That God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and that holy souls shall be in blessedness with Christ, I am convinced by the following concurrent evidences on which my soul raises its hopes the immortality of the soul, the belief of it naturally implanted in all men, the duty of all men to seek after future happiness, the difference between men and brutes concerning the knowledge of God and the futurity, the justice of God as a governor of the world, divine revelation, God's hearing and answering prayer, the ministration of angels, the temptations of Satan, and especially the sanctifying operations of the Spirit of God. Number one, the soul of man is immortal and therefore, if good, cannot be forever in a bad condition. An immortal spirit is a distinct, self-conscious, invisible being, endowed with natural powers of never-ceasing action, understanding and will, in which is neither annihilated nor destroyed by separation of parts, such as the soul of man. If in this flesh our spirits were not inactive and useless, we have no reason to think that they will be so hereafter, and that forever. Though by the light of nature we may know the immortality of souls, yet without supernatural light we know not what manner of action they will have in their separate state. It satisfies me that God will not continue their noblest powers in vain, and how those powers shall be exercised is known to him. And this his word tells us more than nature. All things considered, there is no reason to fear that souls shall lose their activity, though they change their manner of action, and so it is naturally certain that they are immortal. And if holy souls are so far immortal, their holiness must prove their happy immortality. This the most just and holy God will certainly secure to those whom he makes holy. Number two, the belief of the soul's immortality is naturally implanted in all men. Almost all pagan nations at this day, as well as the Mohammedans, believe it. As for the cannibals and savages whose understandings are less improved, they are rather ignorant of it than disbelieve it. Though some philosophers denied it, they were every way inconsiderable. Though many others were doubtful, it was only a certainty which they professed to want and not a probability. Most of the apostates from Christianity, beside those philosophers who have been its violent opposers, fully acknowledged it. Julian was so persuaded of it that with a view to it he exhorted his priests and the rest of his subjects to great strictness of life, and to see that the Christians did not exceed them. Indeed, few of those that affect, like the Sadducees, to disbelieve it, are able to free themselves from the fears of future misery, but, with all their efforts, conscience still troubles them. 
And which should all this be in man, and not in beasts, if man had no more cause for hopes and fears than they? Number three. God has made it every man's duty to seek after future happiness as the one thing needful, and therefore there must certainly be such a happiness for them that truly seeketh. Some believe a state of future retribution, as Christians, Mohammedans, and most heathens. Others think it is uncertain, yet very probable, and to others it is also uncertain, though they rather think it untrue. Now all these ought to seek after it, and make it their chief care and labor, for natural reason requires every man to seek that which is best with the greatest diligence, and assures us that a probability or possibility of future everlasting happiness is better and more worthy to be sought than anything attainable in this present life. As the will of man necessarily desires happiness, it must desire that most which is best and which is known to be so. In this life there is nothing certain for an hour. It is certain that the longest life is short. It is certain that time and sensual pleasure, when past, are nothing, and no better than if they had never been. It is also certain that they are dissatisfying while we possess them, for carnal pleasure is no sweeter to a man than to a beast, and to a beast is unattended with fear of death, or any misery after death, nor has a beast any labor, sufferings, or trials, in order to obtain a future happiness, or avoid a future misery. Besides, it is self-evident from the perfections of God and from the nature of His works that He does not make it man's natural duty to care and labor most for that which is not or to seek for what is not to be obtained. If so, the duty of man would result from deceit and falsehood and God would govern the world by a lie and not by power, wisdom, and love. And the better any man was, and the more he did his duty, he would be only the more deluded and miserable, and the more wicked and unbelieving any man was, the wiser and happier would he be. But all this is contrary to the perfections and works of God, for he makes nothing in vain, nor can he lie, much less will he make holiness itself, and all that duty and work of life which reason obliges all men to perform, to be not only vain, but pernicious. Number 4. The difference between men and brutes with respect to the knowledge of God in futurity shows that they differ as much in their hopes. Man knows that there is a God by his works, and that this God is our Lord, our ruler, and end, and that we naturally owe him all our love and obedience, and that it is not the manner even of good men ever to suffer their most faithful servants to be losers by their fidelity, or to set them upon laboring in vain. Man also knows that his own soul is immortal, and therefore must be well or ill forever, and that this ought to be cared for. And why should God give man all this knowledge more than the brutes, if man is designed for no more happiness than brutes? Every wise man makes his work fit for its design, and will not God do so? If God was not perfectly wise, he would not be God. Therefore, to deny man's future hopes is to deny God himself. 5. The justice of God as the governor of the world infers a state of future retribution. If God did not govern man by laws, judgment, and executions, there would be no proper law or nature, and man would have no proper duty, nor be in sin or fault. But experience tells us that God morally governs the world, and his right to do so is unquestionable. If God was not the ruler of the world, the world would have no universal laws, for no man is the universal ruler, nor are kings and other supreme powers utterly lawless and ungoverned. And if God be a ruler, he is just, else he is not so good as he requires earthly princes to be. But how is God a righteous ruler if he draws all men to him by deceit? 
if he obliges them to seek and expect a reward which he will never give, if he makes man's duty his misery, if he requires man to labor in vain, if he suffers the wicked to persecute and kill his servants without punishing the one and gloriously recompensing the other in a future state. 6. The gospel revelation is the clear foundation of our faith and hope. God has not left us to the mere light of nature. Christ has brought life and immortality to light. One greater than an angel was sent from heaven to tell us what is there and which is the way and to secure our hopes. He has conquered death and entered before us as our captain and forerunner into the everlasting habitations. He has all power in heaven and earth and all judgment is committed to him. All his word is full of promises of our future glory at the resurrection. Nor are we without assurance that the departing soul at death enters upon a state of joy and blessedness, as appears by the promise to the penitent thief on the cross, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Christ telling the Sadducees that God is not the God of the dead but of the living, the translations of Enoch and Elijah, and the appearance of Moses with Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, our Lord's arguing that they who kill the body are not able to kill the soul, his commending his spirit into his father's hands, and its being in paradise while his body was in the grave, his promising where I am, there shall also my servant be, and so on. Stephen seeing heaven open and is praying, Lord Jesus receive my spirit. Our being come to the spirits have just been made perfect. Paul's desiring to depart and to be with Christ which is far better, and to be absent from the body and present with the Lord the blessedness of the dead who die in the Lord, the disobedient spirits being imprisoned, and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Also Christ saying, When ye leave this world, ye shall be received into everlasting habitations. 7. God's hearing and answering prayer in this life assures His servants that He is their true and faithful Savior. How often have I cried to Him when there appeared to be no help in second causes, and how frequently, suddenly, and mercifully has He delivered me. Such extraordinary changes beyond my own and others' expectations, while many plain-hearted, upright Christians, by fasting and prayer sought God on my behalf, have abundantly convinced me of a special providence, and that God is indeed a hearer of prayer. I have also seen wonders done for others by prayer, more than for myself, though I and others are too much like those who cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and He saved them out of their distresses, but they forgot His works and His wonders that He showed them. And what were all those merciful answers but the fruits of Christ's power, faithfulness, and love, the fulfilling of his promises, and the earnest of the greater blessing of immortality, which the same promises entitled me to? Number eight, the ministration of angels is also a help to my belief of immortality with Christ. They have charge over us, encamp round about us, bear us up in their hands, joy in the presence of God over our repentance, and are all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to the heirs of salvation? As our angels, they always behold the face of our Father which is in heaven. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, all the holy angels shall come with him, and he shall send them forth, and they shall sever the wicked from among the just. Not only of old did they appear to the faithful as messengers from God, but many mercies does God give to us by their ministry, and that they are now so friendly and helpful to us, and make up one society with us, greatly encourages us to hope that we are made for the same region, employment, and converse. They were once in a life of trial, though not on earth, and having overcome their rejoice in our victory. The world above us is not uninhabited, nor beyond our capacity and hope, but we are come to the city of the living God and to an innumerable company of angels. 
Number nine, even Satan himself by his temptations has many ways cherished my hopes of immortality. There are few men, I feign, that observe what passes within them, but have had some experience of such inward temptations as show that the author of them is an invisible enemy and assure us that there are diabolical spirits which seek man's misery by tempting him to sin and consequently that future happiness or misery must be expected by us all. Number ten, more especially, the sanctifying operations of the Spirit of God are the earnest of heaven and the sure prognostic of our immortal happiness. It is a change of grand importance to man to be renewed in his mind, his will, and life. It repairs his depraved faculties. It causes man to live as man who was degenerated to a life too much like the brutes. Men are slaves to sin till Christ makes them free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. If the love of God shed abroad in our hearts be not our excellence, health, and beauty, what is? That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born in the Spirit is spirit. Without Christ and His Spirit we can do nothing. Our dead notions and reasons, though we see the truth, have not power to overcome temptations, nor raise up man's soul to its original end, nor possess us with the love and joyful hope of future blessedness. It were better for us to have no souls than have our souls void of the Spirit of God. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L, 3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, 
they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.